Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fully Automated, an Occupy IR Theory podcast. This is your host, Nicholas Kiersey, and I'm very pleased this week uh, to be presenting you the first in an occasional book club series of podcasts we will be doing in and around the topic of fully automated luxury communism, of course. Uh, and this episode's book is Four Futures by Peter Freys, which is part of the Jacobin series from Verso Books. Freys' argument might best be thought of as a sympathetic critique of the utopian dreams of the horizontalist left for automated technologies. To be clear, Freys has a great respect for the ideals of this tradition of thought, but he believes that unless communism can transcend its traditional politics of production and somehow also articulate a politics of consumption, it won't be able to address the challenges of global warming. Also, critically, he wants to address the risk of an unevenly distributed communist liberation, uh, which technological change might occasion. That is a scenario similar to that described in the 2013 film Elysium by Neil Blomkamp, uh, where access to automation has radically transformed the life of the few, leaving the many in squalor. Uh, such scenarios might be justified by the logic of scarcity, warns phrase. And so, while a communism of abundance might tempt us, in reality, it is only socialism which is capable of building the sorts of institutions which can guarantee a fair share to all, while also ensuring that we respect the limits of the environment's capacity to sustain human development. My guests for the show are Laura Horn and Phil Davis. I invited them on because although they have very different backgrounds, they do have mutually complementary areas of expertise for discussing a book like this. Laura is an old friend, a political scientist working at the University of Roskilde, just outside of Copenhagen in Denmark. Uh, yes, she says, uh, Denmark is a great country, but no, uh, despite the uh, fantasy visions of many Americans, it's not quite a socialist wonderland that it's sometimes made out to be. Uh, while her own research has mainly focused on dimensions of capitalist restructuring in the European Union, she has a strong political and personal interest in the nexus between political economy and science fiction, which is a theme that is uh, often on display in Four Futures. And so it makes perfect sense then that uh, Four Futures is one of the texts that she uses in a course that she teaches in Roskilde uh, called Repoliticizing Capitalism, Contradictions, Critique and Alternatives. Phil Davis is also an old friend. Um, he is also, I should mention, the uh, composer of the theme tune for our show. Uh, but uh, professionally, he is also a molecular biologist working in the biodefense sector in the Washington, D.C. area. He's currently working um, on his master's degree in bioinformatics from the University of Maryland, University College. And uh, Four Futures for him uh, sits at the intersection of... Uh, his great enthusiasm for both left-wing politics and the topic of futurology. And um, yes, he is also a great musician. So um, without any further ado, uh, let's get on with the show. And here's Laura and Phil to take us through Peter Fraser's Four Futures. Laura, Phil, welcome to Fully Automated. And uh, of course, here we're talking about Peter Fraser's book, wonderful book, Four Futures. Um, and I thought maybe just to set the scene for the book, maybe for listeners who are not familiar, we could um, open up today just by talking about the some of the premises of the book, some of the arguments that underlie it. Um, 
We have, of course, the themes of automation, climate change as some of the major concepts uh, that are relied on. But uh, he does seem to make two points um, that are, seem to be very important to him. First of all, um, while there are uh, obviously ominous trends developing in uh, the sense of automation maybe putting us out of work, our climate change threatening um, the ecology of the planet and our future livelihood as a species, um, these fates aren't predetermined. They are, in fact, political choices that, that we're making as a species. And so one of the factors that's coming into play here is um, what choices we have and how those choices might be restricted by capitalism. So in that sense, maybe the book is easily identifiable as a Marxist text, but perhaps not unusually so. Um, but there's something else at work in this book, and I think it's perhaps to do with the question of what he calls social science fiction that he outlined at the beginning. And I'm just wondering, did you guys pick up on that, or uh, if, it, if, if the science fiction element that seems to constantly weave its way through the book stood out to you in any way, shape, or form? Well, I think one of the, one of the wonderful things that um, that phrase does is by engaging in such detail and such depth for such a short walk mm. um, with the political economy, the underlying political economy um, in his scenarios, which in itself is already science fiction. I mean, that's what economy is. It has this sort of forward projection, this, this, these assumptions, um, and then um, turning that into a, a, a social science fiction scenario is, I guess, something um, which puts him apart from this, what he calls fetishization of sciences, of natural sciences in the, um, in the broader science fiction genre. So highlighting the social in that, highlighting the politics, highlighting the contingency, I think it's a really, really important contribution by saying, look, there is something that does not have to be this way. There is something that is not, not inevitable. Um, yeah. Um, it, it is it is a distinctly um, it is a distinctly political exercise to run through the contingencies here. I think, I think it, for him, it seems to highlight the idea of um, he says I mean, he sort of contrasts the idea of possibility as opposed to likelihood, um, because in his terms, it. it shows or highlights the possibility of collective action and the importance of us with thinking about Yes, go ahead. With the exception of like the major premise of the book is that capitalism will end. Like that's coming to a close. Yeah. And it's yeah. and it's and it faces uh it faces dangers that are uh some of which are stipulated in the book and some of yeah. which are not. Uh, -huh. uh, but it's, it's just, there's a thousand knives out for capitalism right now. In this book and, uh, or in general? No, not oh, in the book. Like I was saying, like in the book, yeah. he, he, he mentions a few, there's yeah. other ones that are not mentioned in the book, um, that might be tangentially related, but, um, that's the main premise of the book is that capitalism is coming to a close. These are the, these are the way the dice could roll after this, I think. Definitely. Um, sorry, to, I interrupted you. No, 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 no. I mean, I think that's something we can we can we can talk about this certainty, as you're saying, that capitalism will end. In a sense, the the four futures that he discusses, obviously, that's the title of the book. The four futures are futures that are all possible and achievable post capitalism, depending on what we do with our collective action. So, uh, one thing that sort of comes through there is that he doesn't seem to sort of really 
give us a sense or signal of how um, or what metrics we might use to sort of figure out or measure or assess where we are in relationship to those possible futures. I mean, obviously, there's some fearful language here about, um, and he talks about the cynical left to a certain extent about, you know, it's sort of various Mad Max scenarios, but, um, and he also talks about, you know, maybe some neoliberal capitalist ideas, which sort of talk about, you know, shedding the body and sort of shedding the need for nature altogether. But, you know, how do we know, do you get a sense reading the book of how we're supposed to know where we are in relationship to these potential threats that, and our, our, our glorious futures that, that are described. He doesn't give that. And I think that's because he's trying to write a book that's 140 pages. He just wants to present it as kind of like, isn't this thought provoking? Which mm-hmm. it is. I'm sure there's lots of people out here who haven't committed much thought to this subject. Um, but he, it's all very superficial in the book. And I don't think he even tries to try to put pinpoint where we are on this continuum. Right. He doesn't try to place bets on what's going to happen. In fact, even this whole... So the premise is capitalism will end and then these four futures are contingent on this kind of uh metric he uh this these parameters of abundance and scarcity mm-hmm. and e- even that he treats you know superficially and i'm not saying that as an aspersion i'm just saying that the abundance uh, vehicle as you described is automation and the scarcity vehicle is global warming but there's other scarcity vehicles like there's <laughs> lots of there's lots of ways that scarcity can play a role in, for instance, landing us on the socialism hierarchy or, you know, uh, or I'm sorry, the uh, socialism <laughs> paradigm right. or the exterminism paradigm. These, like, uh, Laura, do you want to yeah. come in there? I, I guess, I mean, I, he says somewhere to, I, I suppose, to hedge his bets. Um, he doesn't see this book as an exercise in futurism. He, right. he doesn't doesn't want to do that um but then he gives a couple of pointers in between where you can see that maybe i mean probably if you had more time and you bought him a beer he would probably have his ideas of <laughs> these metrics um because where he you know he has he has these two moments where he says you know the catastrophe and i'm, I'm quoting here i sort of you know wrote it down because you know you need to quote people the yes. catastrophe would be that that humanity kind of adjusts to climate change and we just keep on mm-hmm. muddling through for the lead so mm-hmm. he has this baseline against which he he kind of sets his four futures. And that's the baseline he doesn't want. So he makes that jump between, okay, this is the muddling zoo, this is where we are right now, and right. I just want to jump into the future. I do not want to engage with that transition, which would force him to go into the metrics, which would force him to go into the temporal argument as right. well. You know, right. when when we get this. Yeah, it's um, a crucial point you're raising. I think that he's not engaging in futurism at all. And that's exactly why science fiction is important to him. Uh, because yeah. I think he's talking about the idea that it, um, it, again, that it allows you to sort of like almost um, si- talk about a situated experience of a future as opposed to trying to do a catch-all kind of Alvin Toffler style um, capturing an entire sort of systemic appraisal of um, wow. what's actually going on in, in, in a future. So it's that lived sense of it that maybe even sort of putting that, going back to human action again, you know, making sure that we understand that there are human choices at every step of the way here. Right. And if there is any work to be done uh, in our transition to these futures, it's it's laying the groundwork in a value system that lets us navigate to yeah. one of these futures, which I think is the yeah. thing that, uh, in the United States at least, that's 
that's where the real work needs to be done is that we need to develop a kind of especially the um the liberals um hmm. need to kind of they they're kind of awash in nihilism now where they actually don't have a value system with which they can kind of navigate these problems like the Trump administration and things like that it's all just just comes across as noise because there's nothing organizing the thought process beyond yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe this yeah. kind of obsession with um, what some people are calling, say, call-out culture. Or, uh, well, there's that shit going on, and there's just, it's just kind of this whack-a-mole uh, uh, Russia. Like, all of a sudden, we're the mm. we're going to co-opt national security from the right wing, and that's going to be our... And it's nobody cares. Right, right. You're right. working at Walmart on food stamps. Nobody, They don't care. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's talk about something that might change that then, because I think one of the core things in the book, of course, and Phil, you put your finger on it there a, a couple of moments ago there, um, where this idea of, um, of, of a sort of a, an assumption that he's sort of unashamedly or unapologetically making in the framing of the book, and that is that technology does tend towards perfect automation and that it can remove, and I'm quoting here, all need for human labor in the production process, and therefore that a, a life of leisure, a life of pure leisure, as he says, is possible. So maybe just leaving out aside some of the maybe tired debates about whether or not that's a good thing from a moral perspective, because of course, you know, we've heard it all before, uh, you know, work is somehow needed to make us more complete or um, to give us a sense of meaning or value or worth in the world. Let's just talk it's about It's also navel-gazing, because like, <laughs> it's going to happen. So <laughs> develop a new moral code that doesn't include that. But it, it might, it, you know, obviously there's different frames that, that um, different time frames where it, where it could happen. But, but do you, th- so obviously you're, you're, you're saying you do believe in it. Laura, do you believe that, that uh, this uh, life of pure leisure is, is possible? Oh, wow, you're nailing me down here. Um, I, I, I don't, I don't quite because, um, I mean, maybe maybe to to jump into into what Faze does here as well. Yeah, he sure. has that he has that weird section where you know he's talking about he, he's you know this this automation and leisure. Yes, great debate, but I mean he really has that that section where he's talking about uh, emotional labor and care work and of what course, to do with yeah. that. That's yeah. where you see that the argument he's he's making about automation comes from a fairly sort of workerist kind of perspective. Definitely. That means he's looking at, you know, industrial automation. Mm-hmm. If you look at if you look at the rise of um, social robots, you know, care robots, um, for instance, there's a really interesting, interesting he discussion here doctors, where yeah. you can bring in you can bring in all sorts of feminist and, and also sort of post human discussions, what have you. Um he uh, you know that he doesn't really deal with that. It's a, you know, he, he talks about, you know, he clearly doesn't have a dog. Um, go and read that section again. Um, he, do- but, um, he doesn't have a dog. <laughs> I, I also yeah. missed that, but that's a funny uh, conclusion. Well, I'm, I'm deducing there's um, where he talks about, you know, do people really need human contact? Oh, yeah. Because leisure, leisure is something, you can only have leisure if you have human connection. Right. Um, because in order for care, for households and care work to happen, you need work. And everybody needs to have that kind of reproductive angle in their lives. I mean, even if you live by yourself and you have the time and the basic income to, you know, 
spend your time by yourself, you still need to reproduce your body. And that needs to happen through human interaction because someone needs to hmm. someone needs to, you know, grow the food that you need that's agricultural, but someone also needs to clean your house unless you do it yourself. Um Someone needs to raise your kids, and that needs to be an interaction with you. Someone and needs others to keep you sane. It, yeah. So, so what uh, what he uh, lines out here, or, or, or sort of doesn't include here, is the argument that what happens if we have total leisure, but who takes on these responsibilities in the household? Um, on mm. which basis of hierarchy do we do we um, do we organize those? So there are, there is no total leisure here to the extent that someone will still have to do these these undesirable jobs that cannot fully be organized. They cannot fully be managed. I mean, he he says very explicitly he does not want to go into these discussions of but you how do. to. You do. I do. I do. I think. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, it, yeah. It's a cop I do too. Actually, it's a cop out if you don't because. You 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 kind of say yes, full automation, and then at some point we'll end up in that communist happy place where everybody's equal and hierarchies are, you know, the only hierarchies that he uses is the kind of class hierarchy. Yeah. He mentions sexism and racism very, very quickly, somewhere in passing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. As he does um, everything else. <laughs> yeah, obviously it's a short book. But um, I think it's quite a fundamental point to to the the entire vector, the entire two by two that he sets up with regard mm-hmm. to yeah, the hierarchies. Yeah. You know, someone's gonna someone's gonna have to do the all the the you know the baby work. Phil, you know about the sure. baby work. I mean, how you know? And there well, there are all these all these structural aspects in existing societies that will have to be overcome. In I suppose. Phil, you think, have though, a different view, right? You you seem well, to yeah, sort of, I kind of because you're focusing more on a, on a longer. I think if I remember your earlier comment, you're focusing on a kind of a longer term context here. That you're sort of saying like one at one step somewhere along the at one stage somewhere along the line here, this is actually going to be a reality. Well, the time frame is is like I don't know. There's ambitious estimates. He includes he includes uh, Kurzweil's. Uh, 2047 or whatever right. estimate of the singularity. Yes. There are people who think it's going to happen much longer <laughs> than that, even, you know. And yeah. like Laura's saying that there will be these kind of tasks segregated to human work still, but that will be elective. I mean, in this thought experiment. Yeah. Yeah, but not all domestic, even like the cleaning your house stuff. I mean, mm-hmm. the, people have Roombas. I mean, that's a primitive <laughs> example, but <laughs> that cat's like to I sit think, on. on I think YouTube. what he misses here, and I don't even know why he makes this point. In the in the uh, introduction, he says uh, he says this: "We will have to do at least a little work to manage yeah. and maintain the machines," which is completely missing the point of what's happening, which is that it's going to be machines all the way down. Okay, yeah. it's turtles all the way down. The machines will maintain the machines. That's the really, that's that's the through the looking glass moment of the automation thing. Is that Humans will actually be elbowed out of the whole equation. We're Phil, not going to be able. Let me to just ask you a banal question here. I mean, um, how uh, uh, by your reading, how soon is this happening? I don't know. Like, uh, there's so you, there's there's ways that you could uh, measure this. So, like, uh, if you look at the number of like the size of a of a artificial computer you would need to make to mimic the 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 interconnectivity of the human brain. There are people who say by 2027 we'll be able to essentially make an in silico human brain equivalent. Wow. Which, 
once you can do that, I mean, from a computational standpoint, so mm-hmm. like there's the software challenge, but a, a lot of people, depending on <laughs> the school of machine learning that you subscribe to, <laughs> like there's some people who say that's all you need is that once you have the connections, once you can build a thing connected enough like that, the learning is intrinsic. Like mm. then there's experiments to demonstrate this. Like uh, there was some thing in the early 2000s where they disconnected uh, the ocular nerve of a ferret and connected it to the hearing part of the brain and then it learned to see anyway because <laughs> pretty much brain cells are generalized. They can learn to do any test. Now, it wasn't, it wasn't as good. It couldn't see as well as a ferret who <laughs> had his brain set up correctly, but this um, still it was this idea of um, it was supported this connectionist theory of the mind where it's like as long as you can continue to make connections, you can make these arbitrarily large networks that can understand and learn to do anything you know anyway. that's fascinating so and now i'm sorry laura you want to come in there yeah yeah let me um, can we can we just run with that argument a little further about, absolutely about, we have time about yeah. the, the let's say the automation and and the 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 possibilities of of technology there definitely um that thing about the artificial womb i thought that was oh, you right. the, the issue of the, the artificial womb it's, that was it's quite cool right yeah, because there's this this report just a couple of weeks ago that they, you know, went all, at least all over my Facebook, um, uh, with another artificial lamb, not artificial lamb, a lamb that they have actually grown um, um, to term. So the gestation was successful in the artificial womb. Um, and that's really something where you see, at least in, in kind of feminist science fiction, Mm. That notion has been explored a great deal. Um, obviously, Fraze is not so concerned with feminism, broadly speaking, in his uh, in 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 the in the selection of science fiction material. He's he too rushed in this text. Yes, yes. Mm. But he could have. I mean, it's a missed opportunity because if you if you go back to some of the sort of classic Marxist feminist science fiction from the seventies, the idea that technology can be, uh, you know, a, a force of emancipation rather than rather than something threatening. Um, it's quite strong there. I mean, even even Le Guin picks it up. Piercy, all these 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 ideas that the moment we separate gender from biological sex and the the, the functions, the reproductive reproductive functions, at the same time, um, even if that happens, you know, I don't think that will be a ever a system where robots can actually service these reproductive functions. So, you know, maybe at some point there will be industrial robots who can actually maintain and service other industrial robots. Mm -hmm. But reproductive functions um, and the whole, you know, once you have an art, once you have a lamb that was born out of an artificial womb, someone's going to have to take care of it. You know Mm -hmm. what happens to animals at least... um, sort of high advanced animals who are not brought up in a situation where they get this kind of emotional context, right? I mean, there have been yeah. studies that, that they just wither and die. So this emotional labor, this kind of, this kind of sort of softer interaction between people that robots simply can't substitute. Um, I, how do you do that, Phil? I don't want to take this conversation too far off the rails. 
Okay. Uh, so I'd like to keep it about politics because I think it's it's important still. And like, even if I think that all these things are going to happen, even in the short term, that there isn't a lot of stuff that we need to do in the Whoa. short term to make sure catastrophe doesn't happen for a great many people. Because I, I find human life intrinsically valuable. But yeah. uh, the big failure of this book, I think, is that it's looking at this future that is defined by this single parameter that is like that is completely missing what's happening. <laughs> like, yeah. like, like you said, like this, this. This artificial womb thing, singularly as a technology, fundamentally redefines the human experience. Period. Like How so, that Phil? Alone, if you if women don't have to use their bodies to reproduce, mm-hmm. all, all overnight that reorganizes society. Maybe you can argue about the degree of it, but like that mm-hmm. that for instance reorganizes society. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe. Uh, Maybe at this point, um, just to sort of jump in, we we could agree to sort of. Um, draw a line under that those the some some of the sort of particular nuances of 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 where all this ends up and and also the various time frames uh because i think the point as we've all agreed i think the point that he's sort of trying to make in a sort of a more immediate sense is that we are we are potentially on the cusp of uh being able to and i'm just going to sort of refer mostly now to the to the communism chapter before we hit the ecological stuff, which I think comes obviously later in the book. And that's an important part of the conversation too. But just to sort of hit that communism chapter, I mean, we're on the point now where automation might release us, he's arguing, from the the humdrum of necessary labor, right? And of course, this Mm -hmm. is where the idea, and he talks about Marx from the Gotha program as a kind of a stoner philosopher. Um, and, And of course... I don't know that you need totally self-creating, self-managing, self-repairing robots to make that human experience possible. I think that sort of idea of an automated society as relieving us from a massive amount of labor is at, at least more imaginable than some of the more far-flung kind of Battlestar Galactica scale and <laughs> philosophical questions uh, that, 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 get, that we could obviously raise and I, You're right, and, because and in if that you sense, go then, too far, it destroys yeah. the political argument. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So there is that sort mm-hmm. of question now of like, well, look, guys, the technology is here. We have the choice through our collective action to make this happen. Now, of course, one of the responses to that is the so-called WALL-E thesis named after the cartoon, um, mm-hmm. where the conjecture is that, look, if you don't have human beings doing wage work, in order to give them a sense of wholeness and purposefulness, then invariably they're going to just turn into slobs. And um, can I is, see the flaw in yeah, that real quick? Yeah, sure, go for it. <laughs> I I don't know. Maybe this is maybe I'm optimistic, but I kind of feel like the main uh, adversary to people's health now is wage work. I feel like if you freed them up, people would exercise. They have time to take care of themselves. That's just my person. Yeah, well, certainly. I would. Wage I, work I, is... I work. I go to school full time. If I could exercise as well, I would do it, but I can't right now. You know so the I'm work saying? is wearing you down, baby. Yeah, you know, yeah, I get it. having to be somewhere it. for eight or nine hours a day, plus coming home and taking care of the kid and fixing dinner and but free me the, up. I'll here's, exercise. Here's I'll the philosophical problem, <laughs> though, you have to confront because while. That communism, so to speak, that fully automated society um, might liberate you from the need to work as hard as you do. It ain't going to necessarily make everything roses, right? So this is where he sort of borrows this notion from Corey Robin um, of communism, of a communism that's conceived as a kind of an ordinary unhappiness. So, Phil, while you're going to get off work earlier tomorrow and maybe you get your workout in, 
um, you're still going to have issues in your life, right? Well, so, there'll be all sorts of issues. And where do those arise from? It's the parameters of man, right? The, the breadth of human experience. Uh, well, I, I'll, I'll say not experience, but like there are all types of people out there, right? And what you find out is that there's a lot of different types, but they're, but they're finite in number. And a lot of them you see conserved behaviors. There's only so many different types of people, right? So I'll say for myself, if I had 24 hours in a day, they wouldn't be enough. I would have no trouble filling my day with all sorts of interesting things to occupy myself and things that I would find, you know, entertaining or rewarding or whatever. There are some people out there who suffer from a lack of imagination, I think, from a little bit. Uh, and uh, some of these, I have to imagine, I don't know any, but I have to imagine some of these types end up as CEOs of major corporations. Like, <laughs> <laughs> it's my psychopath you... theory for history. <laughs> like, there are people out there who don't respond to the same fundamental way, to the same stimuli that the rest of us do. And that's, and then that's true of, across a bunch of people. We're all different. Uh, but we in, all have pursuits that we want to, I, Laura. Some of us I, do. Some of us don't know what to do otherwise. Like this pursuit of power is clearly something. Like I, I look a lot of it like hoarder behavior. Like yeah. if you're a billionaire and you want to get another billion dollars, that you've divorced the dollar from any kind of like experience. Yeah. Uh, from any law of diminishing returns, it's not responding to like I don't need to feed my family. I've bought several private islands like at this point you've not like money can't get you anything that's attached to any human experience that i understand so it's yeah. like it's this hoarding behavior it's like oh i i i save every newspaper after my significant other died because i don't know what to do and i've my brain's a broken mechanism it's like that's i see that as absolutely on the same continuum as somebody who's a billionaire who's looking to make another billion dollars doesn't make any sense to me and i think it doesn't make any sense to a lot of people does it make I sense to you, Laura? <laughs> I guess I mean there's a there's a there's a lot of discussion here about you know some of the pathologies of capitalism and how it how it yes. deforms deforms the social functions the innate social functions and yeah. capability just leeway that human beings have. Yeah. Um, there's a um, I mean to to stay with phrase here I mean what he what he does very well in the in the socialism chapter is he goes through this wonderful wonderful book. Um, um, of Kim Stanley Robinson, which is really this, this, this great utopian vision of um, a California, which is so boring. Yeah, it has this funny um, little love triangle in it, and it has characters bickering over this and that, and it's, it's you know, there's all these meetings, and it's yeah. it's. it's Aspirating, and you just want to go. Oh, kill me now if this is the future. But it's it's <laughs> it's beautiful because it really does show that even though you have actually achieved a utopia in California, there are all these issues that come in, and you know there's there's sort of these 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 profit motives, which and 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 statues, hierarchical issues that rear their ugly little head. And yeah. human beings are still human beings, and you know um, love triangles are still a thing. So yeah. in a sense, then so, are are, su are humans suitable for utopia? Is the question? That is a very good question, and I, I think I mean if you go with the if you go with the idea that you know for to reach the orthodox idea to reach a utopia, we have to fundamentally remodel and sort of have a very malleable human being that needs to be educated in the right way, and before you know it, you go down the authoritarian path, and I think we really mm -hmm. have to resist. 
Um, and and Faye, I think, shows that in a subtle way, where he goes into the idea that, you know, the, there are structural structural things at play here that might mean that even the communist um, utopia mm. he talks about might not be the right way. And if I can just bring in this... Or even this, possible. Or even possible. And then the other thing is, I mean, he's been... And if I if I can just bring in this this argument, we've been quickly emailing about this before. Yeah. You know, he doesn't really say how would these how would these even the 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 communist utopia how would they relate to other communist utopias that might be located in the same planet? Or you know, if you extrapolate this argument to Red Mars, what if there's other planets? Um, what happens if there are if there are um, conflicts? How are they resolved? Where does hierarchy come in? I mean, at, at some level, the, the, the organization of societies, there will always be hierarchies. He I mean, says that, the right? Assumption, but assumption that there, yeah, the assumption that there is a non-hierarchical society amongst um, biological beings that live yeah, off of course. social order is, right, is Laura, in itself. You know. I wonder... Um, you know, because th- this is the sort of the beginning of the communism chapter where he says, you know, let a hundred status hierarchies bloom. Yeah. Um, and I guess you're sort of putting your finger on it, that it's kind of a letdown, isn't it? Because communism is, I think we all have a sense that it's supposed to be more than that. It, it's supposed to be almost paradise. And I, he, Can't be. He, he's, he's definitely <laughs> sort of saying like that, that the point is not to get rid of hierarchy altogether because... In a sense, that is kind of a human nature. I mean, I, yes. I, he might not use human nature, but I mean, it's it's implicit, no, that's right? Implicit. And yeah. you know, this this discussion of how we behave in our various online behavior that um, that we are sort of regularly or frequently demonstrating our uh, intense fascination with our own status. And so, the point is not to sort of be so idealistic that you think that that behavior is going away today or tomorrow but to simply get away from the fundamental hierarchy, which is all this is being done under the sign of money, right? And, mm-hmm. and, and Yes, that's, and that's a noble goal, I think. I yeah. think that, that should still happen. I think the idea is uh, that you should... We should, we should we'll allow our hierarchies to flourish in a non-financial manner, a non-financialized yes, manner. But we should also, no matter, you know, the idea of... Um, so my idea of what really America, the American experiment, was all about, is uh, is four score about, and twenty I, years ago. Sorry, sorry to get this uh, <laughs> abstract here, but the idea of like finding concentrations of power, no matter the nature of their existence, and separating them up. So like in this case, money is obviously the big problem we're facing now. But like in this future that you're describing of uh, a thousand or a hundred hierarchies or whatever, is that you, the deft management is finding the problem and splitting it up into smaller problems such that it can't become something that uh, you know violates the social contract or whatever you want to. But I don't know. Like the, I think in human nature, like you were talking about, that whatever system we have that we end up in is going to be tied to the metrics of people. People are this way. They're, mm-hmm. Or they're a bunch of different ways. And the ways that they are influence the topography of society. No matter the, no matter that whether it's money or uh, your reproductive attractiveness or whatever, you know, whatever the, the metric is, like, 
it'll reorganize and there, you'll never be able to eliminate human suffering. What's your but take you on that, Laura? Do you to decrease oh, sorry, the depths of it? Is my point is that there yeah. should be compression. There should be compression so that we decide morally that's the line we draw. You can never die because you don't have health insurance. You know, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I would I would drink to that in a contemporary context. But I think I mean the the thing is that if you if you want to if you want to make these general arguments about about um, fundamental values. I mean, you're now talking about values there, Phil, right? They're yes, never quite, they're never quite universal. They're never quite universal. So who, and then we're back to politics. Who gets to say? Yes, Where yes, do you get to yeah. say? What, Which is what why I don't think the communist future is plausible. I think that there will always be politics and some, until, well, until science fiction just dissolves that whole But But even there. science fiction, even science fiction, I mean, and, and that's, that's part of why um, what what phrase you know that when he goes into the communist discussion he starts to uh, to the uh, the Star Trek angle and I think that's quite appealing because what Star Trek is not a communist utopia it's a liberal pipe dream if you think about it with no I money. mean what <laughs> with no money yeah but that's what it is I mean if you want I'll to have, have to defer because I'm not really a Star Trek yeah well, you just you just have to be quiet for this part of the conversation Phil yeah, Laura fine. and I are, Laura and I are going to talk Star Trek for a second no no but the point is here that um even though though Star Trek um might have post scarcity or some version thereof there isn't you right. know that the internet is full of discussion stuff but it might be it might be more interesting to look at what happens next and what is the the human nature that's portrayed in Star Trek and that is to go out and discover the rest of the world and to happily share with them their first directive and to sort of visit new planets, which means that apparently humans get bored and they would like to, you know, share yeah. the joys of their system. Yeah. Well, not only um, that, like uh, exploration is, an in I think, of the intrinsic human responses. Like, if you want to get me <laughs> excited about something, talk about space exploration. Unraveling the mysteries of the universe is something I can get. I thought super we just had to get you on a podcast to get you excited, Phil. That, that yeah. I didn't realize go, it took more then, than that. I get, my, I get excited all by myself. But then, <laughs> if you if you if you look at if you look at the, I mean, we never in Star Trek we never fully find out what happens. Yeah, that's so true. That is so true. It's so much on exploration. If you go to other scenarios where you have this combination of post scarcity and exploration, you find that there's this 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 almost again, it's it's a it's a liberal idea of you know um, go out and 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 uh, and share the joys of your system which you perceive to be better, yeah. which often ends up in um, in a sort of almost colonial exercise. Um, there's this beautiful there's this beautiful work by uh, by Banks on the culture novels where you have this highly advanced culture society that is also characterized by post-scarcity that just wanders out into the universe um, and and interferes or you have this uh, you might have seen the uh, the expanse on uh, yeah I really like that show yeah very yeah, interesting where you, where you have you have post-scarcity you have universal basic income on earth but then what happens mm. is that People don't get work. People don't qualify. People don't get jobs. People are still in abject poverty. In the because belt. They yeah. don't I'm glad you said that because this UBI thing is actually a little bit of a red herring, I think, I've discovered. Oh, yes. Yeah. 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 
Um, you guys yeah. want to elaborate on that a little bit? We have some. Yes, time? I'd love to talk about that, and that's what I was going to bring up in that thing when the before we started recording, uh, where Zuckerberg came out in favor of it, right? Oh yeah. And somebody <laughs> somebody made some comment like that he was co opting the left, and I was like, yeah, yeah, no, that's not what ha- that's not what's happening. These guys, <laughs> these guys have figured out what's going to happen. Before we like have, huh? Jeff Bezos is not an idiot. Jeff Bezos say, sees which way the world's going. And he's like, if I want to ma- maintain my status at the top of this food chain, I have to give people money to buy things from me, right? That's what's going to inevitably happen. So That's I'm the Henry I'm my Ford idea, right? I don't know actually what it Henry, Henry Ford. Ford um, ah, this you you learned this in sort of a political economy 101 kind of class, but you know the idea oh, is sorry. Henry, oh no no no, I didn't mean it that way. I just meant like it's a kind <laughs> oh. of a I I it's um. I have no idea if this is actually true or not, but it's just you hear it said so often. It's <laughs> mm. <laughs> a truism. Yeah, exactly. But uh, the idea was that Henry Ford wanted everyone to be wealthy enough to buy a Henry Ford car. You know, he wanted all his workers right. Isn't specifically. Isn't that every capitalist aspiration? Yes. I don't know to... that it is for financiers. Yes, it is. Well, you're right. There are, you know, you're right. Because again, describing the topography of human nature, there's all sorts of motivations that influence these people but yes the idea is here here's the question that i i'm not gonna say it keeps me up at night but i really ponder and i don't understand the answer to is that jeff bezos is out to destroy retail right to ultimately be the the source that you go for for Mm. anything amazon is it yeah right yeah everything so uh in this future where he's simultaneously automating his his stock rooms all right. the delivery system. They, you've seen those videos where they have like the, the robots that are do all the yeah uh, yeah. So and they're and they're touting it. They're they're proud of it. Mm-hmm. So in this future, he's got to understand that aggregate demand disappears. Yeah. Nobody has any money for anything. Yeah. So he, he's yeah. he's got to have already been thinking like, okay, if I want to stay at the top of the heap here, I got to give these people something to buy back from me so I can maintain my position in the hierarchy. So He's UBI, UBI a lot is of the trick. So Laura, UBI I mean, going to come out from business. The business community is going to come out in favor of the UBI. Is what I'm telling you. <laughs> if they That's are, maybe they already prediction. have. Yeah. Well, originally, it was a, originally it was Milton Friedman's idea, no, or at least it sort of goes uh, back it, to was that. Was it era. really? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Is am I right on yeah. that, Laura? Well, I mean, basic income in 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 various shapes um, has been around for quite a while, actually. Um, yeah. That the idea that it's supposed to be universal now. Is maybe a, 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 a an addition that has become stronger over the last couple of decades. Um, but I feel I'm 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 I am really um, I'm really on 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 your side there regarding the kind of um, technological technological changes that would drive business leaders, if you want to call them that. Um, it is quite scary to think that so many people on the left of whichever variety you want to talk about would throw in their sort of strategical positioning with people who are very clearly not on the left. I mean, from a political, yes. from a very basic political idea, I, it, Myself I find included. Because six yeah. months ago, I was like, UBI, it's coming. It's just a matter of how much civil unrest we're willing to endure between now and then. But, but now I'm like, mm, wait, it's more complicated than that. Like, <laughs> yeah. UBI is going to be used as another tool of oppression. Basically, basically, and it's it's you know there are UBI is a is a is a is a wonderful thought experiment if you want to 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 look at it from that way and and you know the case studies that are 
and phase actually refers to some of them. There are interesting cases and there are more and more UBI experiments going on. Mm. I mean, it's really taken off this year. Um, but, but some of them are in good faith and some of them are not. And so mm. what I'm yeah. saying is like, there's going to be a, an army of bean counters that come out in the United States and crunch and say, what's exactly the lowest amount of UBI we want to yeah. provide to, uh, yeah. you know, Guys, we only have um, we only have so much time on the clock, unfortunately. So I'm going to uh, use my host's prerogative and um, sort of scoot us along to um, I think another important question in the book, which is um, if we if we're willing to kind of give phrase the benefit of the doubt and um, draw a line under the communism chapter and say, yeah, okay, you know. Clearly, that is a possible future, and the collective action um, issue is is it seems a fair, pretty good um, sort of foundation for that. You know that it's not a he's not making a prediction; he's just saying it's possible, right? That if we get our act together as a species, if we uh, pursue communism, yeah, that is that's definitely technologically possible, but. There are, of course, these limits then, and they're the limits that are going to haunt capitalism just as much as they're the limits that are going to haunt any future communism, right? Because, of course, consumption is not a resolved question under communism, and I think that's his key point, mm -hmm. um, that we can't just have a politics of production, which is what communism ultimately is. We also have to have a politics of consumption, and that's why... He is. What do you I mean think, by that exactly? Like, well, I, I think he, he yeah he sets out. I think he sets it out in 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 the uh, in the third chapter, which is socialism, equality, and scarcity. That you know you think about a lot of and, and Phil. I'm not sure if you're up with this literature, but I think Laura would be uh, given her line of work. People like James Livingston, Kathy Weeks, or maybe even Cernichick and Williams to some extent. Um, in um, in recent years have been sort of arguing hard that we have the potential to enter into a post-work society. And I think what um, Fraze is trying to do is to suggest that the idea of being post-work is about allocating production differently, using the robots to help us with our production, right? But obviously that is not a politics that can take as a starting point a set of environmental limitations that easily, right? Because the minute you start bringing in limits to production, you have to start thinking about how much of the earth we are consuming, right? How much of the natural resources of the world that we are uh, consuming. And we can always get into debates about, um, you know, um, romantic notions of nature. And, you know, we all, we've probably seen that video of... Um, Zizek walking around this trash uh, dump in uh, New York City, um, condemning you know naturalistic notions of of, of the environment, um, and arguing that in a sense destruction is in inherent to the environment. But even so, he wants us to sort of courageously step forward and recognize that we're not saving the environment for the environment's sake. We're saving it. Inevitably, no matter what way we look at it, we are saving a version, an aesthetic of the environment for ourselves. And yes. so I mean, this is the politics of consumption, right? It's an artificial, it's man-made politics of consumption, but it is a policy of consumption. And it's something that we have to start thinking about if we want to understand the limits of what we can do um, with our robots, so to speak. So um, there's an urgency here. And I just think... Um, you know, there's so many things to say from that, but but, but what, 
just even your reactions at this point. Uh, I've got a few things I can say about it, but... But let me make two points. Um, the first point goes towards the fact that capitalism is not quite the same wherever you go. I mean, the, the uneven distribution and the uneven development that you have in capitalism means that consumption takes place um, at various levels, various scales, in, in, in very different ways. And, and the technological saturation that you might have in markets is sort of contrasted to, to developments and consumption patterns in other places of the world, for instance, or the planet, what, what have you, um, that might mean that there is a propulsion to capitalism which um, makes makes consumption patterns in other parts of the world look look rather sort of uh, even I don't know outdated but but it ridiculous. It, it just ridiculous I wasn't going to say it but you know the 4K would still enable you to watch your funny pictures of cats a lot faster than you already do in in that way um, and the other argument about you know the saturation of markets. Capitalism usually finds a way around it. Capitalism sure. will then tell you you need to have, you know, the, the, the kind of technological innovation, social innovation that comes in when capitalism hits that barrier of the saturated market and the barrier of technology. There will be innovation around that because that's, that's, that's the, let's say, you know, the, 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 the ingenuity of capitalism. But maybe to, to come in from a sort of innovative social organization point of view, um, there are all these discussions about degrowth, and, yeah. and I think that's something that phrased. I've never heard this. Okay, um, degrowth is the idea. There's different different models of how you can organize societies, um, both economically as well as sort of the, the the economic and social relationship. And one of the ideas is that you do not have to have growth necessarily. I mean, that's that's what phrase. Um, sort of assumes with all of his models there has to be progress, there has to be growth, there has to be development. Um, and that's very much something that drives capitalism in a, in a degrowth. There's different models. There's degrowth, there's a steady state um, mm -hmm. assumption. You maintain um, population size. Um, population is a very crucial factor here and phrase doesn't engage with it. Um, but I think there's a you, for that. And there's there's there's, there's Terrifying reasons. I think that, I, I think. think there's actually a point somewhere no, in I mean, there where he does mention population. Yeah, um, yeah. and no, talks about. That, sorry, go ahead. Sorry, the the assumption is that the population that is needed is in decline, and then he goes into exterminism. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, but how how do you deal? And that brings us back to reproduction. Sorry to kind of push that point, but okay. how do we deal with um, a for instance, a population increase under 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 full communism. If people have leisure um, and you maintain the the mm. um, social environment for people, where, as Phil said, you know, we don't have to have human suffering, um, people will still have to have uh, want to have kids. That's a great question. So, like, uh, I guess Nick was talking about like the role that science fiction plays. Beyond this book, there are a bunch of really serious moral questions that we have to ask, some of which have nothing to do with capitalism. The idea of let's imagine a scenario which, in which, for instance, people live forever. We can supply that. We've, we've, we've achieved escape velocity on extension of human on life. Yeah. 
we can just live forever. Yeah. Well, do people have an intrinsic right to reproduce anymore? Well, we have to ask that question, don't we? Is yeah. that a right you have? I don't know, because it's, it's at potential odds with other people's interests who want to not balloon the population of the world past a, past a, you know, this idea of innovation in the capitalist markets, you're saying, well, they'll find a way around it. Well, that's what a lot of people say about the population maximum, too. And it's this idea of, like, the religion of innovation. We'll, find, we'll continually find ways to innovate beyond this theoretical maximum we have. Well, the laws of physics will eventually come into play. Where it's like mm. it's physically impossible by the laws of thermodynamics to sustain more people on this planet, or yeah. by the same token, uh, find additional utility from so some Phil, new product. Like Phil, it's just, I mean, just to, limits, physical limits to that. From to, a, sort, from to sort of rein that in, because uh, I mean, I, I think we're going to have to wrap it up in in, in a little while. Um, we're, we're coming to sort of towards the end of the show, and I do want to ask you both um, for your kind of um, parting words on the book and uh, whether you think it would be useful for broadly the left to take its argument seriously and um, for, for the book to be uh, um, sort of taken up by the movements. But uh, just to come back to uh, this point about the limits of thermodynamics, whatever, obviously you're in a very sort of far science fiction kind of future context there. Um, but even insofar as that argument um, sort of is an extrapolation of issues that are just even present here and now, I don't think that the ecological crisis needs to wait for that kind of off-in-the-distance science fiction scenario for us to have the ecological crisis. I think the, um, the, the, the crisis, so to speak, is already here. And one of the controversial things, which I, I think I'm going to ask you both to sort of chime in on uh, as I ask you to give your concluding remarks, maybe, um, which is, you know, for for a communist, this guy sure talks a lot about markets, and um, <laughs> you know, th there there's um, a, a number of texts that I've sort of come across in recent times, which I, I, I've talked about. Well, doesn't that make contexts. him a socialist then? Um, well, yeah, sure, I suppose <laughs> there's that argument, but I mean, I think I think Phil, the distinction, and a lot of people, I think, don't get this right, but um, you know, uh, David Graeber in his book about um, debt, uh, talks about anarchism um, as a kind of, um, you know, in the we, that we can be anarchists today, here and now, just through a kind of an everyday communism. Um, and everyday communism really is, is, is a kind of a pure horizontality of human experience and organization. And so the problem, I think, where you bring socialism in is because you're saying not so much that we need markets, but actually we, that we need verticality. Um, a little bit. So, so yes. if, com if, commu I, I if com even Laura was saying that, yeah. Right? So just that, to sort of, know, there just has to, to be some amplitude to, to the human yeah. experience. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what he's recognizing in this third chapter, um, ultimately. That um, while, and I was just thinking about this in relationship to other books that I've read recently, like Mackenzie Wark's book Molecular Red, where um, you know I think he sort of stays stuck in that horizontalist mindset where he cannot really countenance. Um, a politics that embraces verticality very much. You know, he's a kind of a libertarian Marxist. I, he kind of threw it away in this communist chapter with the hundred of hierarchies thing. He's kind of tacitly mm -hmm. saying that there's something intrinsic in human nature where we're not going to be able to flatten the human experience. Oh, no, I totally agree with you. But, yeah. but it really sort of um, cuts to the chase in the socialism chapter because that is uh, where he starts talking about 
what you can accomplish with UBI plus a number of government-run market-based systems. So you can create kind of artificial scarcities. And he, the example he uses is really interesting. It's the Los Angeles parking system where they have sort of created a market by putting pressure plates or something like that. I think there's some sort of sensor they put in. Yeah, the some way to spaces. sense that if there's a car there, then the with rates... The, with the view that there should always be one free space on any street. And if you're willing to pay the price, you can have that space. So, okay... He, gets, he says, this gets me off the hook of this being a capitalist market because I don't uh, see any private entity making a big profit off of this. Well, that's the thing. It's that's actually what all the city. capitalism is judged is who, gets, who wins at the end, right? Like, right. So how do you feel about that? That, that idea uh, of a socialism that is organizing markets and creating I'll say this. Vertical, verticalities. I have but, no problem intrinsically with markets. The yeah. idea of using markets, it's like, this, this, the problem with capitalism as an ideology is this idea that I'm going to use fire as the tool to solve every problem. Yeah. When it can burn down your fucking house. You know what I'm saying? Like, sorry, yes, I don't know if that's... You can swear on my show, Phil. You can't swear? You can. <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, You're alive. Is that it's not, it's, it's, it's saying capitalism is this fire that will, that does, makes no judgments. It has no moral compass. It just burns through whatever whatever fuel it encounters, right? Yeah. And it's, and it's insane to say that fire is the solution to every problem. I'm a hammer, every, every problem's a nail. Yeah, no, yeah, yeah. markets can do things like uh, deliver you the tastiest soft drink, but it's not a way to deliver healthcare. It's just not, it's just, it's, it's lunacy. And that's that we, I'm going to say, and from this American perspective here, is that the, the idiocy of this country, the reason it's so profoundly poorly managed is because there is no one making these deft judgments mm-hmm. about morally, no, using markets to deliver health care is immoral. We're not going to do that. I, I think that markets have their place in, in, in some places, in some mm-hmm. forums, you can use markets. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. Mm-hmm. But in some places, the outcomes is outrageously immoral. That's the problem I have with it. I don't have intrinsic... I'm not like, oh, markets are terrible abjectly. No, I don't think that. They, Laura, you're... They're a tool um, that can be used appropriately. You're, you, what, what's your take? Uh, the idea of markets organizing production is something I think we're all familiar with. Markets organizing consumption and the LA Express parking system. Um, any response? Well, markets organizing consumption, there's nothing wrong with that... Um, on principle, um, markets are markets are really important mechanism for any social organization. I would think um, it, you could even think about sort of horizontal ways of of trying to engage in market like transactions. But I mean, Faze does give his his you know the yeah. the the discussion he he follows up on on the on the Los Angeles uh, parking thing is you know the the structural inequalities that characterize the transactions right. on the market i mean that's what you're concerned about but then yes. the problem with but the the problem with his idea of verticality is that he is he 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 then comes in and says you know let let a thousand and one hierarchies bloom and he doesn't go into the actual how does that translate into political agency how does that translate into who then gets to say who then gets to can't know to, to, mm-hmm. to, yeah but that's it's, another it's, book yeah it's another book but 
and, and obviously it, it kind of comes back to the kind of transition dilemma, but he wants to, you know, he clearly he, he clearly wants to 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 push a couple of sort of points there when he goes into the the uh, Uber thing. You know, socialized Uber. A socialized Uber, Uber right? Uh, a we're an owner yeah. operated and owned, so to speak, Uber, right? Yeah, yeah, but you know, that that kind of that you know, he has these moments where he, he falls back to these ideas, these fairly commonplace ideas of of how we can how we can have these these you know real utopias is what what uh, Eric Ollenweid calls the kind of worker owned um that's great but who gets the uber drivers to organize who gets to who sort of initiates who articulates who formulates um the ideas that they need is in Uber order being to... held up as like a good example of some kind oh, of... no, God, no, okay. no, no. I mean, he, you know, the sharing economy gets gets its fair part of critique in the book, I, I think. I mean, in, in my reading. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, they, they, they get I, a hard time. He gives them a hard time, yeah. for sure. As, they, as I mean, they deserve. But this is definitely sort of go back to that Eric Owen Wright um, kind of um, idea, the, um, the idea of building what I've seen uh, Eugene Holland uh, argue as a kind of um, slow motion exodus right like that that you have these sort of you you start by creating piecemeal defections from capitalism today i mean certainly that's very seductive and you can certainly look at examples in that already exists like the um you know the, the this el sebo chocolate um manufacturers in bolivia or the mondragon factories in spain uh you know obviously these are sort of already existing socialist formations that exist within but also slightly removed from capitalism um the kind of question though i suppose you 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 end up with though is to try to bring it back to the ecology because the minute i suppose that you create these um sort of um owner operated our operator owner um kind of collectivities i'm just not sure how you coordinate this as a sort of set of purposeful instruments to check consumption. Like, you know, there's going to have to be some kind of integrated mechanism to look at global warming as a totality and create kind of some kind of governing structure, ideology, um, mechanism that would that would keep these um, sort of utopian um, mechanisms in place, right? That that would keep Isn't these. The short u- answer: a planned. It would be a planned economy, right? Well, that's. I mean, it, we're in the terrain of socialism. I'm just wondering how far we go into that, right? Like how far we, how vertical do we go? If it was Jody Dean reading this book, I think I know what her answer would be. Um, if we if we stay with that question about how do you organize socialism in a situation of scarcity um, under under a sort of politics of consumption that that satisfied this this urge for for social equality I mean that's the question right that 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 yeah. Faze wants to ask yeah. and I think what he doesn't do and what a lot of people don't talk about is that politics of consumption needs to be global if we want to maintain this kind of ecological yeah. balance because you know sourcing there is a limit to extractive politics, for instance, of rare earths and energy. Um, and 
you know, taking taking the the transition thing out of equation here. I mean, if we if we sort of assume that has been taken care of, the transition has taken place. But um, you still have the fact that there is an unequal distribution of resources uh, geographically and at different scales, and that needs to be that needs to be that needs to be in one way or the other managed logistically. It needs to be organized through some sort of vertical cooperation mm-hmm. um, and 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 planning um, across the planet, because otherwise you have these little sort of socialist islands. Um, which are prone to have conflict. Um, yeah. Well, that's the scary part about the exterminism hypothesis, is that in some ways you can argue we have inklings of it already. The idea yeah. of the sure. drones as extrajudicial assassination devices and using algorithms to figure out what targets are and then killing them without actually verifying any of this information or whether the, how, how accurate is the algorithm. How, how, what's its error rate? I don't know. We're just killing people in the war on terrorism using these, you know, uh, mm-hmm. these autom- essentially automated decision-making capabilities. And that's what's really scary, I think, because I can imagine these scenarios, and I think this was even touched on in the book. I think he did a good job of at least briefly touching on all of the yeah, definitely. salient details. And this idea of these private armies, of this, like, uh, these guys wall themselves off, they've got their private robot armies, and they're unassailable. And, like, what mm-hmm. are you going to do? They're going to bring these to bear on you. And people will have – what recourse will they have? They'll have so, none. So, um, guys, um, we have, I think, come to the end of our discussion. Um, I think the conversation has highlighted a number of ways in which this book uh, can be seen as starting a conversation um, yes. about – not just the horizon of the left in its traditional way of identifying itself as an organization or a, a movement of organizations, a movement of movements um, oriented towards um, a better distribution of economic wealth um, and social justice, but also opening up a question of how um, traditional uh, horizons of communist thought uh, may need uh, to sort of uh, transcend their recent preoccupation with uh, horizontality and uh, embrace uh, measures of vertically integrated socialism because we don't have the resources to fully uh, accomplish um, the, um, the kind of fully automated luxury aspect uh, of communism um, without... Um, uh, you know, setting some limits to our consumption. With that uh, sort of uh, observation in place, I think phrase is optimistic ultimately that you can kind of have your cake and eat it too, to a certain uh, extent. Uh, So you can certainly have a fully automated luxury socialism to a certain extent. Maybe that's the takeaway message. Um, Well, there's reason to hope, but there's work to be done. Yes, indeed. Yeah, 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 exactly. So, Laura, I know it's been a very early morning and a start for you. We've uh, watched the sunrise with you uh, on Skype. (laughs) So thank you very much uh, for allowing us to uh, steal your beauty sleep. And Phil, I'm going to send you off to your beauty sleep um, because it's late uh, now for you here. And uh, I know you have uh, a busy day tomorrow. So, guys, thank you so uh, both so very much for joining us uh, today on Fully Automated. Thanks, Nick. Thanks so much.